<clears throat> so there's a, a lovely phrase from Thich Nhat Hanh that I reflect on and, and, and quote a lot when I teach. And it says, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese Zen meditation teacher, mindfulness teacher. And he goes, mm, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. So that's really what this practice is. It's an invitation. It's not a dogma. It's an invitation to use and take up the practice, to develop it, to become more aware of yourself, your mind, your, your being, and what allows ourselves and each other to live with peace, live with clarity, live with compassion. So um, the Sufi poet Hafez put it another way. He put it, he said, um, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Right? And we do. We mix a little bit of uh, we wake up in the morning feeling a little, oh, it's raining, and then we feel a little gloomy, and we think about all the things that we haven't done with our life yet, and all the things that are unfixed in our house, and all the people that don't like us, and we feel self-pity and a bit of judgment, and we feel like crap. That's called mixing all the ingredients and turning your life into a nightmare, which is what we do a lot. We, we pick up mental habits and thoughts and patterns that are not so supportive of our happiness, and we mix them around, and then we wonder why we're not happy. We judge ourselves, and we push ourselves, and we berate ourselves, and neglect our bodies and our hearts, and we wonder why we're not living optimally. <coughs> so then the, the, the poet goes on to say, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into joy, and your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. So I think of... Um, the practices, you know, Buddhist practices, as those kind of ingredients. We're cultivating awareness, kindness, patience, generosity, love, compassion, forgiveness, peace. Right? We mix those ingredients, watching the mind with care, and that begins to create a, a happier soup, happier soup of our lives. So one of the things that, I mentioned this a little bit this morning, one of the things that mindfulness does as we deepen in our self-awareness is it starts to reveal things that we're not so crazy about, that we may have already been quite familiar with, but they, they reveal them in different ways. So um, meditation, if, if nothing else, is humbling, right? Because we look at our mind and we look at how untrained and wacky and um, wild it is. And uh, we see that we've got some work to do if we're really paying attention and really being honest. Right? That our mind leads us into all kinds of problems and difficulties. And uh, in the beginning, of our journey, or not just at the beginning, at many stages of the journey, that perception of seeing our stuff and our foibles and our neuroses and our pains and our 
struggles can be quite um, unflattering and not very inspiring. Um, and it's easy to, to, to drift off from doing the practices that reveal that, those things. Right? So it's, it's easy to stop meditating when it gets hard. Usually we stop meditating when we need the meditation. Right? Life gets stressed, we feel unhappy, it's too difficult, so we stop. But it's usually those times that we actually need that refuge of clarity and space and openness and kindness to deal with the stuff. Right? Anybody stop meditating because it got too hard? Life got too hard and challenging and busy? And, right? Yeah, frequently. So this is from a 16th century um, philosopher, Francoise Fenelon, who writes, puts it this way. He says, as light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings. He describes them like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. I think it's a bit of an exaggeration, but sometimes it can feel like that, you know. Maybe Christian context, 16th century. (laughs) We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are filled with horror, but bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. That last line being very important. And bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. Right. So if we take awareness as this primary vehicle, you know, mindfulness as this primary vehicle for self-understanding, then of course often what we first encounter is a whole host of filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. No, we hit challenging, difficult stuff, right? It's, one, it's what brings us to the path in the first place. How do we deal with these different energies and patterns and habits that are, not, that are, that are causing a lot of difficulty and strife? Um, and as awareness grows, sometimes that's all that looms, is that, is that sense of my stuff and my challenges and my neuroses and my insecurities, in, in and, um, which is why we need so much kindness and compassion on the path. Right? So I'm in the middle of teaching a compassion training here at Spirit Rock, and I'm teaching that course because... One, we need it in our lives, in the path, and two, because as, we, as, as awareness grows, we start to see all of this stuff that's not so easy, and it's essential that when we, when we start to see more of ourselves, that we meet that with kindness rather than judgment. It's so easy to see stuff in ourselves or others, and the judge, the critic, the shamer, whatever you call it, is there to say, see, I told you you were rotten in the inside. I told you you were a bad person. I told you 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 know, were never going to get it together. Right? So it's really important that we imbue that, this awareness that we're developing with, with affection, with befriending ourselves, befriending our experience, befriending um, each other. Which, of course, is easier said than done. Everything I say up here is really, sounds really easy. <laughs> and actually to do is really hard, or sometimes hard. And it takes, you know, some people it's not so hard as others, but it takes practice. And mostly what it 
needs is it and we need to see what's getting what's getting in the way of that so whether it's judgment or harshness or cruelty or shaming or rejection that we do to ourselves right we need to see what's what's accompanying our, our, our awareness that's not so kind not so caring So, um, one of the things that's, that the Buddha pointed out that I think is a really perceptive awareness is that um, this pattern, he called it the second arrow, the second dart, where we have just our everyday experience, like, you know, something difficult comes up, maybe we're feeling... Um, Maybe we're dealing with a lot of grief and sadness, you know, from a loss of a loved one, or a loss of a job, or loss of home, or loss of something that was beloved to us. And instead of being kind to ourselves for that tenderness and that loss, we judge ourselves for being weak, or judge ourselves for not being over it already, or judge ourselves for being too vulnerable and too teary and needy in public or whatever the story you know we it's so easy to overlay our challenges with judgment and it's the thing that most kind of log jams our process is by judging and condemning ourselves so um so it's essential that we see this pattern of adding suffering onto pain right there's plenty of pain in life physical pain emotional pain relationship pain life pain and then, but our mind can add these stories or judgments or layers that really we want to see really clearly with mindfulness, to see with those ingredients we're adding that are not uh, supporting our, our well-being. So, and you'll see this in just the way that you talk to yourself, the stories, the self-talk, you know, sometimes you'll maybe, make, you know, you're, you're, you're meditating and you're just, you know, in and out watching the breath and then you drift off into some work story somewhere and the mind says, get back! You know, Stop thinking! <laughs> <You know? laughs> like some sergeant major in there is like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. Thinking happens. Right? No. Noticing you're thinking, you come back. Oh, there you've gone again. Come back. Okay, you come back. Right? So you notice the tone in which you yank, your, the mind yanks your attention back. Right? Is, an, is a clue. We have lots of clues about this negative self-talk. So, what I wanted to talk a little more about this afternoon, there's many things, I've got way too many things to talk about, but... Um, mm, well, a little more about being in the body. You know, we'll do some walking meditation in the rain this afternoon because it's very gentle this afternoon. For those who want to go outside. Um, so, I mean, I've talked a little about this this morning about the importance of being inhabiting our bodies. So right now as you're listening, noticing what's happening in your body. Can you listen through your body? Can you, can you, not, can you get out of the head and just allow the words to see what impact or resonance they have in your body, in your heart, in your belly. So the Buddha in the, in the, in the 
discourse on, on mindfulness talked about four foundations. The first one, and really the primary one for us, is the body. Uh, he talked about being mindful in all postures, as I said. Um, he gave this metaphor of how we should be mindful of walking through the day. He said, imagine you're walking through a crowded marketplace in India, which is very crowded, and you have a bowl of boiling hot oil on your head that's full to the brim, and you're told to follow a beautiful dancer that you've completely, passionately, lustfully into, dancing through the marketplace. Um, and, you, and if you spill it as much as a drop of oil, the person behind you who's carrying a, a scimitar sword will cut off your head. So we have to practice like that. <laughs> Not with fear, <laughs> which would induce that, likely induce that for most of us, but that sense of balance and, and precision yeah, with focus. Don't about the dancing girl, but dancing boy, or whatever your thing is, but just that um, sense of embodied presence. Okay. What would it be like to walk through the world like that? <clears throat> so, of course, you're not going to do that with a pot of boiling oil, I hope. But um, <clears throat> the point is, he said, you need to be mindful when sitting, walking, standing, lying down, talking, getting up, eating, defecating. Um, Anything you're doing, like be present. Be here. Be in this beautiful body of ours. So which of course requires that we come into a more intimate relationship with our body, which most of us don't. We live eyebrows upwards. We live in our head center and we're mostly looking at a screen these days, which we get even more disembodied because we're in the virtual world. And so very, you know, I was just, I was giving a talk yesterday, yesterday, on this webinar to um, Buddhist geeks. It's an it's a online forum for the tech Buddhist community. And, um, you know, talk about alienating, giving a talk to a screen. <laughs> Disembodied people and somewhere in cyberspace. Um, about the, you know, how, how important it is to stay present when we're at our desk, when we're looking at the screen, which we do a lot, or looking at the phone, or the iPad, or whatever it is. Um, and the body is a storehouse of information. It's, it's everything that happens to us manifests through the body. Every thought, every feeling, every perception, there's some resonance happening through the body. Every memory stored in the body. And more specifically, our emotional life happens in the body. And so I want to explore a little more working with our emotions this afternoon, which means tracking what's happening viscerally, particularly in the torso. You know, what, what our emotional state is like and how we relate to it. How we are with boredom or agitation or love or vulnerability, or tenderness, or frustration, or rage, or terror. Right? We get to experience, you know, the meditation is really like a crucible, you know, and, and we, just, we just sit there and we let this whole dance of life play it out. And if you sit long enough, you'll have all these different emotions. And so we get to look at our relationship, right? the response. Right, which is, again, that's key piece in our 
freedom and well-being is how we respond. How do you feel when anxiety comes up? So last year, I went on this writing retreat. I was trying to write this book on compassion, which I'm still compassionately trying to write, slowly. Um, and uh, it's not really happening, but it's, we're getting there, you know. I'm almost at the table of contents. <laughs> not quite, but I'm getting there. Um, and so I go off to this cabin in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, up in Canada. Took like two planes and the two boats and a shuttle and a taxi and a walk to get there. Like, it was like ridiculous. And um, anyhow, long story, st- long story short, I get to this writing retreat and I have, a, I have like a, sort of like a mild panic attack. And it wasn't really a panic attack, but that's a good way of describing it. And uh, some trauma memories came up and just very, just this whole like, as sometimes can happen when you write, just like the demons come out, like just, just anything unresolved. <laughs> so um, I didn't write very much. <laughs> Um, but it triggered this really deep layer of anxiety that I had that lasted for several months. Very intense, very unpleasant. I hated it. I didn't want it. I tried everything to get rid of it. Tried to meditate it away, as you do. If I just, if I just, you know, it's like bargaining meditation. If I just sit here, I just, you know, breathe long enough, <laughs> you'll go away, please, you know. And of course, it didn't work. Just stayed around, <coughs> and. Um, so eventually, you know, it, like with many things in life, you have to surrender. You have to just let go. You have to allow it to be here, whatever it, it is, and um, and learn how to. So I learned how to relax in my body and just be, you know, again looking. I was just. It's really exploring the attitude. Like, if I could find that caring, loving attitude then it didn't matter whether the anxiety was present or not, or intense or mild, because it was, it was being held with this loving presence. So that was the teaching, and life will always push our edge to find, to, to force us to find our, to stretch our capacity to love, or to be kind, or to be accepting or embracing. So um, I left the cabin really quickly, because it was not actually a great place for me to be. Um, which was a teaching in itself. Like, you know, some people say, well, you just stick it out, you know, tough it out. And that's one way to go. I have friends who've done that. Um, sounds like suffering to me. I came back to a more supportive environment, as you know, this is wise action, right? Don't just sit there and be a doormat and like, oh, anxiety, I'm freaking out, I'm going to die. No, I, t- you know, took appropriate response, in that case, be with friends and whatever I needed. Um, but the point of the, the story is, um, to um, to look at our relationship to what's arising. And we all have our skeletons and we all have our places that we reject and, and suppress and struggle with. Right? So we want to look at that because wherever we're closed, as the poet Rilke says, wherever I am closed, I am false. I want, he says, I want, I want to unfold. Where I am closed, I am false. Which really means I am not complete. I am not whole. Right? I'm, I'm split off. Right? We split off. We abandon ourselves in many different ways. We're all terrified of being abandoned, but actually, mostly, we abandon ourselves. We abandon our body. We abandon our purpose. We abandon our meaning. We abandon our um, emotions, particularly. 
Uh, we abandon the scared young places in us. <clears throat> and so practice, mindfulness, it has a, this very fearless, courageous strength to it. Right? You know, it, it has the, the reputation of being sort of avoidant and like you, you, know, you kind of go away from the world and your problems and you go into this sort of blissful realm and it's not really the real world. Right? But actually, if your practice has authenticity to it, it's, it is the real world, because where, where else is he going to be? Like, you know, it's right here. And it takes a lot of strength to sometimes turn towards our demons. <clears throat> so I remember working with this woman <coughs> in a, on an MBSR class, Mindfulness Space stress reduction class at Kaiser some years ago, excuse me, and uh, she was dealing with chronic pain as most people are who are going to the, those MBSR classes. And she had very intense neck pain for about 10 years and gone through the system, pain meds, operations, nothing worked. And she was left to, you know, the, the, the last resort as well, try meditation, see if that helps, you know, because it has a pretty good track record. And she uh, was doing this class, and then halfway through the class, about week four or five, she came in saying she, she was really excited that she'd, for the first time she could ever remember, she was meditating, she was feeling the pain, but mostly feeling the contraction, the tightness and the resistance and the fear that's around the pain, not the actual pain itself, because mostly we do this. So we actually don't get that close to the pain. So she was able to sort of soften and relax that until she was able to actually penetrate the very center of the pain, which if you've had chronic pain, you don't want to go there. You want to stay anywhere but there. But she went in there with mindfulness and she realized it wasn't as bad as she thought. You know, all the, all the years of pain and fear and contraction and aversion and hating and tightness, of course, just makes the, that pain so much worse. And when she was able to find some way of, to soften and ease, that when she could actually tolerate being with the actual pain itself, it wasn't pleasant, but it was bearable. And that's, that's the power of this practice. We actually turn to the difficult. We lean into that which we're usually avoidant from. There's a great line from Achan Chah who says, he's a great, great Thai meditation teacher, he says, um, by, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from suffering. So we think we can run away from our suffering. I'll go to Hawaii, you know, I'll emigrate to um, Bali where some of my friends are going and you know, it'll all be fine. And, but then we, we take ourselves with us. That's, you know, we, we take our mind with us and we take our problems and we take, like, who brought you along? <laughs> All right. I thought I left you in California. You know, I came 6,000 miles from England. Like, oh, I'm, st I'm still here. <laughs> There's no escape. You know, we think we can get away, but we can't. And eventually it catches up with us and usually kind of slaps us in the face because we've been running away for so long. This is from Suzuki Roshi, puts it this way. He said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. 
not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all, and that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So sometimes I've heard stories of people being, being wheeled in the, on the gurney to the operating theater, and it's that moment that their practice comes back. They find their breath. They find that sense of ballast and presence in the midst of a very scary, life-threatening situation. Right, so sometimes we don't know when our practice is going to be there for us. Um, but that's why we practice, why we train. Right? So it's available in those difficult times. We don't meditate to have a good time on the cushion. I mean, it's nice when that happens, but that's not the point. The point is it prepares us for life and it prepares us for death, actually, for the great unknown, the mystery. That's the point, one of the points. So I was um, uh, um, counseling, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, a student, dear student of mine, just passed a few days ago. And um, I was talking to his wife while he was on his, he was close to his passing. And uh, actually I wasn't talking to his wife, I was talking to his best friend, his wife's best friend who was there comforting her. And uh, it was, I was walking, it was a rainy day, it was in San Francisco, it must have been Thursday or Friday. And I'm walking because I had to get to an appointment, but I had this little window to call. Um, and she said, uh, is there anything you want to say to this person, this student? And, I, and I'd, for about half an hour I'd been giving advice and what to do about various things and just being supportive as, as you do in those situations. And so I was sort of on like that task mode and, um, and then she, and she asked me that question. She said, is there anything you want to say to Markham before he goes? And I, I suddenly like, I just welled up with this like, oh my God, this is the last time I'm going to have, I'm going to be able to say something to this, this student. And um, so I stopped, it was pouring rain, I got, got into some shelter and I just kind of composed myself. And, and I was like, again, it was like that moment of really valuing my practice because it really enabled me to get so centered. Like, oh, this is the last thing I'm going to be able to say to him. What do I want to say? Right? And it was just, and I you know, said some things and it was passed on. And then about 30 minutes later, he passed away. Um, and so we never know when our practice is going to support us. We never know when it's going to, that presence of mind, that balanced, kind attention is going to be called upon. Right? And we're called upon all the time in different situations, family, parents, children, work, strangers. Yeah. So let's do some practice. You might want to stretch, actually. Why don't we just stretch for a moment? Been sitting for half an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.